Hi, this is Paul Ford. And this is Rich Ciotti. And you're listening to Track Changes, the official podcast of Postlight, a digital product studio at 101 Fifth Avenue, New York City. We have a great show for you today, Kim Stanley Robinson. The incredibly noted and well-awarded science fiction author is on the show, and he's written a big novel about global warming and its economic effects, which actually has a kind of weird technology hook. uh, Without a doubt. Because technology's in everything, man. I've been reading Kim Stanley Robinson books for ever, ever, hmm. forever. That's Wait, yeah. um, so. We call you Stan, correct? Yeah, call me Stan. Stan, thank you for coming on to our podcast. My pleasure. Thirty-three years is kind of like forever. Is that how long you've been writing? Uh, that's how long I've been published. It's longer for writing, of course, of course. Yeah. So you have written here in my hand a very dog-eared copy of your new book, which is New York Twenty-One Forty which is actually set roughly in the neighborhood where we're recording. Um, yeah, that's right. We're very close to the Flatiron building. Yeah. Is this the longest, biggest book you've written? No, no. But it is one of the long ones. It's yeah. a big book. It's a fatty. And it is, um, it is about the effect of climate change on New York City. Right. And extreme climate change. Well, especially uh, sea level rise. Right. So, so we, we go up 50 feet. 50 feet of sea, of sea level rise, yes. So I get off the express bus every day right by the MetLife Tower. And I love that tower. And I've been, I've been reading this book assiduously over the last couple of weeks and just truly enjoying it and also enjoying thinking about being underwater for most of the time that I'm at work. You're enjoying that. It's a, a serious thing has happened. We're underwater. Yeah. We're 50 feet down. It's 2140. And it's been bad for the economy and for life. Right. And but you know, it threw me off. When you say 50, it makes me anxious because you're not saying 500. It's just 50 and everything is different. It's a lot of sea level rise. Um, really, right now, the the projections from the scientists and from the IPCC, they're being as conservative as possible. And they have this estimate of the highest it would be in, in around 2140 is more like 15 feet. Okay. But uh, 15 feet higher sea level rise all around the world, that's a heck of a lot of water. And uh, But in, in scientific terms, 15 feet, 50 feet, they're both equally possible. It's just... 50 is pretty radical and pretty unlikely. And the only thing I should add is that if all the ice on the planet were to melt, sea level would be about 270 feet higher <laughs> worldwide. Well, that's, and that's you know, that. we're up on the 12th floor here, so 50 feet would be at this part of town, as I pointed out in my book, it would be up to about the third floor. Right. So you could imagine this building still functioning. Right. We would, we'd need to get here by boat. You'd boat on in and, and there would, the ground floor would be the fourth floor. And there's tides, which actually really complicated my story. It's about a 10-foot sure. tide in this estuary. So the uh, subways are out of the picture. Right. Yeah. So we're, we're getting around by boat. They basically, the entire, I'm about to say underground economy, but being literal, of New York City is gone. <laughs> yeah. I wonder, I mean playing the game of what would they do, 
those tubes might be useful for you know robotic submarines to like utilidors, right? Or, and because sewage corridors even right now are underwater, still good tunnels. It's still good tunnels, right? Yeah. One thing that really caught me. Uh, so I know you live in Davis, California. I correct? do. Okay, yeah. I know Davis very well. My my wife is uh, from there. Oh, and if there is an anti New York City. It might be Davis. Yeah, that's so true. It is. There is a... Yeah, the most boring town in the face of the earth. Yeah, when you say anti-New York City, you don't mean they dislike New York City. No, no, no. I mean it's the opposite of it's New York. It's the opposite It's boring. York. There is a tunnel <laughs> under the road for frogs to safely get across the street. Yeah, that's true. No, that's no, not that's true. No, it's a real thing. There's yeah. a small frog yeah. tunnel. Are we, go, the, are we back in the book? No, we're this getting is there. actually Davis. No, this is really Davis. <laughs> yeah. It is one of the prides of the town is the small frog tunnel. Yeah. And you can bicycle everywhere. It's actually just a completely lovely, pleasant place to be. It is a bicycle heaven. It's flat as a table, when, and it's boring in several different ways, socially, <laughs> landscape-wise, and others. But that makes it a good place to work and get right. a lot of work done, and there's no traffic problem. Right, and it's just, it's, it's just it's pleasant. At the same time, so I'm reading this, and you nailed New York City. Oh, thank you. So where? how did you prep what did you do? I came to New York. I walked the streets. I had a little tourist map where I had uh, crayoned in this higher sea level line to see where I was. So you started with topography. Yep. Okay. Uh, and uh, it made it wonderful, strange things. Like on um, Empire State Building looking south, I was really aware that it kind of – there's a little bit of a hill there. Mm -hmm. All the avenues, 6th, 5th, even Park – they shoot down to mm. Lower Manhattan. Mm -hmm. Fifth well, kind of shows that, right? Yes. Nice yes. and wide corridor. Yeah. You could see it. You can see it. And as you walk it, you're thinking, oh, good, at least I'm slightly walking downhill if you're hoofing it around. Because I do walk a lot in Manhattan. Sure. It's the home of publishing. I've been coming here now for 30 years on brief visits, and it's always extremely exciting because after Davis it's it's like uh, it's mind-boggling <laughs> you know and it's proximity to publishing culture is a good it's a good proxy for New York City overall I wouldn't know because it's almost all I know it is it's true yeah. like I mean it's yeah. it's you know you've got that you've got finance and you've got a couple other things that that sort of define the the hierarchies in the city and yeah. then there's everything else that sort of falls out Yep. From there. We're in tech, so we're sort of right by not being in San Francisco and being here, we're kind of redheaded stepchildren of the city. Yes, I could see that. Um, it, They're trying to adopt us. Yeah. They've been trying yeah. to adopt us for years, not us post No, it's true. But. Literally, <laughs> the mayor, the former mayor in Bloomberg, uh, they've, a big chunk of Roosevelt Island is being given over to a new tech college, which is a Cornell University. Cornell and Tech. Cornell Tech and, and Technion of Israel have, have come together to build a huge campus because, damn it, it is inexcusable that New York City doesn't have that Bay right. Area engine. Sure. Uh, and being New York, you've got a whole bunch of capital. You've got a city that everybody loves to come to. Right. Uh, you can see how the logic of it. It's unbearable to ask, us not to in, win, though. In, yeah. Yeah. In Stan's world, does how's that college doing? What happens to Roosevelt Island? It's underwater. Yeah, oh, no. dear. That's, yeah. It's actually... <laughs> okay. Although, we should send them a copy. But <laughs> yeah. Once again, it's an interesting thing to contemplate as an exercise. And also, since sea level rise is going to happen, so it's a bit more than an exercise. But sure. what, what you've got is... Uh, um, uh, Roosevelt Island is perfect for this. Those brick buildings, how well set are they in bedrock? Is that island infill, landfill, or is it 
bedrock. Right. It makes a huge difference. If you can secure these big skyscrapers in bedrock like they are, they're going to survive sea level rise and be adaptable. Right, but lower if, Manhattan parts of Battery Park, there's a lot of landfill. And that part is going to melt. Okay, uh, sure. building, buildings, it's like that biblical saying, a house built on sand cannot stand, or whatever the saying is. Buildings I mean, built on infill. When inevitable. It, yeah, yeah. They sink. And it, are we seeing a little bit of this? I, I saw something recently about Miami. Miami is sort of a glimpse into this. They're literally pumping water off the streets back into the ocean. Miami's in big trouble. Miami's real. And they're still selling multi-million dollar fancy penthouses. Everybody just wants to look the other way and keep... I mean, you can still still buy a house in the Rockaways here, too. Yeah. Most people alive aren't going to be facing this directly. It's really people's children and grandchildren. Because I put it out in 2140 to give things time to get pretty drastic. Mm -hmm. Um, And so we are not going to be looking at significant sea level rise in our lifetime. But what the recent scientific work has been saying is that there's a, a speed of sea level rise where if it doubles the rate of rise every 10 years, which is a guess, we are quickly in big trouble. Whereas if the doubling rate is every 20 years, the power of doubling sure. is, is strong so enough. It's a grains on the chessboard kind of problem. Or, yes. You know, okay. it, I use the, the grains on the chessboard story as a perfect example of, a, I mean, I put it in the book. Mm-hmm. Um, we don't know what will happen, but you look at the curves on the charts and uh, one way or another, in other words, at a certain point in the next few hundred years, we got serious sea level rise everywhere. And every coastal city has a different story. Some of them, like San Francisco, is so hilly that it'll lose its shoreline, like everyone will lose their shoreline. But some people's shorelines or flat spots mm-hmm. are relatively minimal. Right. Other other cities, like Miami, they're flat all the way up to Georgia. I mean, all of Florida goes under in some of these scenarios. Right. Because Florida's weirdly flat. Florida was asking for it. <laughs> yeah. I think it's some we have to just acknowledge yeah, that. Yeah, nobody's too heartbroken. <laughs> um, you know, I w- we were here uh, during... Sandy, the superstorm. Wow. And it was a real, there was a real awareness. First of all, that was one of the first times when we were uh, aware of living in a zone. You know, we got a map with what zone are you in? Yeah, there's and shades. There Rich, were like different color yeah, shades. Yeah. Rich yeah. and I both live pretty well above ground. We were, we're in a very uh-huh. safe place. Never, uh-huh. I, did you lose power? Do you remember? I did not lose power. I lost power for yeah. 10 seconds, like just very insulated. Yeah. But uh-huh. uh, two miles south of us was a genuine disaster zone. Yeah. And, uh, Nobody could do anything, and I live in a condo with lots of young parents, and uh, oh. and everyone just started cooking. And my wife had had the the forethought to um, gas our car up, ah. and so we had gas. There were two mile long gas lines all through the city, so we would just run mac and cheese down to churches in closer to the water line, and we did it for a week. We must have we must have made. That's you know, funny. we. I mean, I, I watched and sort of held the kids while while she did everything, mm. but. That gave me the willies because we were, the, the subways were out. The city was down. Like that, that yeah. line of where there was no electricity is, is very similar to the line in your book. You know, it's like right. we're, that New York City is very, very vulnerable. It is. And yet it has one of the better built infrastructures in the world. And already, because of Sandy, the the New York State Legislature has passed laws saying now you have to harden the infrastructure. You have to take climate change into account when you build new stuff and retrofit when you're fixing things. So now New York is 
ahead of the curve compared to most societies. I think culturally we have good infrastructure too. I mean, yes. Oh, yeah. There's a scene in the book that's that really stuck with me where um, I won't give anything away, but there's been a pretty serious event and people are lining up and kind of getting food. It's towards the end of the book and no one's people are in line and no one's really talking to each other and that's a relief to the main character that you don't have to interact you're just in line there's been a disaster but it's just new yorkers like all right we got to get through this and yeah, yeah no one tries to like put a positive spin or talk about jesus or anything it's just yeah <laughs> and uh and so i think like culturally like we are we're pretty good at like bumping into each other and not letting it lead to like a gunfight yeah in the next few minutes but yeah it's a pickle the book is filled with pickles it's a hard book to explain because um, being said in 2140 means that there's been some absolutely devastating decades that are, th in the book's uh, perspective, like 40 years in the past. Sure. Like us looking back at the Great Depression or World War II or something like that. And yet by 2140, there hasn't been significant sea level rise for about 40 years. So they've been able to adjust. Mm -hmm. So it's a... The book is kind of a comedy of coping mm -hmm. that the people of that time are going to take the situation as natural and the fact that lower Manhattan as a kind of super Venice is just the way it is. And they, so they're coping because they don't know any different. And so that it's not a disaster novel. It's a post-disaster novel because people now tend to equate disaster with apocalypse, with Armageddon, with the end. But what I, this book is trying to say is things don't end. They go on after the disaster and then then people are just coping with what they've got. And New Yorkers take pride in their ability to adapt and cope. And, you know, I, I think back, 9-11 is actually this moment when there's shock. There's obviously everyone's real sad, but then we're going to show you how resilient we are. Uh, yes. We're going to the Yankee game yes. right, that Friday. Yeah. Uh, there, is a, there is that characteristic. The real standard is how quickly can we return to complaining? <laughs> like, like it, right. it, it's yeah. usually about like an eight day period. Yeah, and yeah. then the, you know the thing I remember from September, from September 11th is very quickly everyone you you I was out of the country. I came back and just you talk to like the guy this will age me, but like in the video store, and you'd be like, "How did you do in that thing?" Yeah, like there, there, we didn't mm. name it, and yeah. it it, it yeah. already had a name, but it became like that thing. Yeah, mm -hmm. and it, it started to get kind of boxed off. Like you're okay, you're okay, all right. Well, it, it, it became def you, there was a defiance in the tone too, which is like New Yorkers, we we've been through it all. We we're gonna we're gonna figure it out. And that's everyone in the book has a at least some kind of hustle. Yes, you know, and it, it's yes, there, it's still the regular hustling New York City. Everyone is just like, well, it's underwater. Here we go. Yeah, I've yeah, lived well, with this my whole life. My whole life. And also there's still finance. Right. Uh, and that's one of the things that I did in this book was I wanted to bring it as close to the present as possible so that it was basically the same economic slash political situation as now because I wanted to talk about that and how New Yorkers and everybody else, because this needs to be a global revolution of, of taking back finance for the people. But New York being Wall Street, it's a perfect place to center it. It's not quite the Occupy movement, but it's following the strands of the 2008 crash, the Occupy movement, the emphasis on how, well, income inequality, as we call it now, is an important um, component of the disaster that we're in. Uh, and, and so this was the perfect place to have all that because... New Yorkers do like New York in an unsentimental way so that uh, as, as an outsider, when I come in, I'm thinking, 
you know, why are, why do people live here? Why, it's a kind of a crazy thing to do. It's a fun place to visit, but it must be crazy to live here. But what you see, what I see clearly from the outside is that it, it's an extraordinarily beautiful place. And that's part combination of the bay, the natural part, and then a combination of the built infrastructure, which is semi-accidental, of mm-hmm. a, a generation after generation building these skyscrapers. You can't quite believe it. But it ends up looking like some kind of Andy Goldsworthy artwork. It's mm-hmm. just, it's it's beautiful and charismatic. So there's a, a a high tolerance for hassle and without being sentimental about it, because you can't go around every day. An outsider can come in and go, "Oh my God, it's amazing, it's beautiful." If you're living in it every day, you don't end up saying that every day, but you are experiencing it. It's always there. I think for us, we both have young children, and so that we've started to re-experience it. Like, we, I took, I have five-year-old twins, we took them on the Staten Island Ferry, right? And <laughs> they just found it epic, and it was wonderful. I hadn't been on <laughs> right. for six or seven years. Right, right. And um, and then we got to Staten Island and had to figure out, like, what to do in Staten Island, so that that's always tricky. Yeah. yeah. Um, there's a thing you did in this book that I want to point out, too, which is that there's a, so the, the, Going back to finance, there's a character, Franklin, through the book. Yes. You named his his investment firm in such a way that it's so accurate a name for an investment firm that I, I literally, like, my spine would just retract because it's called Water Price. Yes. Which yes. is just, like, the most perfect, <laughs> like, oh, God. Yeah, of course it would be called that. Yep, yeah. Well, and, it fits uh, several names that are like it. And, oh, of course. Yeah, yeah. It's... Uh, uh, they that also was an easy one. They love names with uh, anything nautical is good too. Anything yeah. like yeah. any part of a sailing ship. <laughs> yes, yes. You know, mizzen mast. The or spar. <laughs> I, well, and also Franklin has his um, uh, IPPI, the Intertidal Property Pricing Index, <laughs> and so I worked hard. I mean, really hard on making sure that the IPI, his his instrument, his financial derivative, mm-hmm. is uh, plausible and correct to what would happen with a new intertidal where essentially you get a um, good property but it's on land that is now underwater or intertidal so at high tide it's underwater at low tide it's not that's a legally ambiguous zone because right. we go by Ro- Roman law and in Roman law you can't own the zone between high tide and low tide so in New York in Manhattan after my uh, purported flood you've got a zone where you can't tell if owning a building on that land is an asset or a liability, a, a, a debt or a, something to loan on. And that's not unusual in finance, but what it is, it illustrates the way finance works and the way it wants to monetize and then make a profit out of any situation. Volatility itself is a profitable moment, and so there's nothing more volatile than a than the intertidal zone because at high tide it's get a mess you know at a certain block like say 34th or 35th and at low tide the mess is down at 25th and so that zone in between those 10 blocks are are an investment opportunity right. or a place where you can bet well that that comes in very early in the book and it really set the book up for me because it was like of course New York City would be obsessed with you know tide linked investment yeah. Um, yeah. And, and analytics yeah. And yeah. Just sort of, yeah. real estate yeah, yeah. that's yeah. right it all the book does sort of all come back down to real estate which mm-hmm. as I now with 20 years and you've been here Rich knows natively in your bones that real estate is how you have a, a good solid existence in New York City you, yeah you own I, something you own something because 70% I, mean, I don't even know what the number is of its inhabitants don't uh, right. they ah. rent ah. so 
that he's like, whoa, I guess got ahead of the curve here if and I can it, pull this off. There's roughly yeah. a trillion dollars in value in the in oh. the in the stock. No, I mean the, yeah. that's the number. And so like, yeah, so thirty percent of that, yeah, thirty percent of the population you know, owns that trillion. Yeah, wow. What this brings to mind, we actually had a a client. Uh, a prospect that spoke to us. Um, and what they were trying to do was make sense of the zoning laws in New York. And the zoning laws are a collection of statutes, case precedent, and literally just sort of these signed off sort of analysis that these auditors do. Well, even more and specific- it's incredibly complex. Even more specific air rights and all this stuff. Uh, I read just enough to understand a little more than I did before about these zoning laws, the setback laws that were, they undid them in 1985. But for like from 1910 to 1985, setback laws just to create what, sunlight zones or that's right. no, walking? Which yeah. is why you have from yeah. that period all those sort of ziggurat style yes, buildings. Yes, yes. Right. Uh, and that creates a habitat for peregrine falcons. So uh, that's <laughs> why we have peregrines. Yeah, because they like the, they need nesting space up high. <laughs> so you have weird, uh, effects, side oh, effects sure. of zoning laws, of, of uh, things like that. that you, they you, certainly they don't consider beforehand. They're just accidents. Uh, you just answered a question, which is my wife and I have not been able to figure out why the hell our children have come back from kindergarten talking at length about peregrine falcons. Like no other birds, just peregrine yeah, falcons. Yeah. So they've been learning about peregrine falcons in New York City. Right. Probably not. They probably haven't gotten to that as a side effect of zoning law yet, but still. Yeah. All right, so... Vast amount of research on this Sure, one. but and you know, it, it when you talk about it, what's research? It's targeted reading about a subject that for me, while I'm working on a book, is everything. It's okay. like the most interesting topic in the world. I can I cannot read enough about it. And New York, uh, uh, I only touched the tip of the iceberg. There's tons more that I never looked into, but I found some really good books, and they were always really interesting. New York anecdote collections, or an entire book on Madison Square, sure, history sure. of Madison Square, a book called Capital by a Kenneth Goldsmith that is all the uh, good, funny quotes and stories about New York, all collected into one massive thing. Well, the place loves itself. Uh, right? Yes. Like it's, it's a self-obsessed <laughs> Oh, the and songs a, go on and yeah. on. This, and, uh, but also an ecology text, Manhattan by an Eric Sanderson that mm-hmm, was about mm-hmm. what the island was like before uh, Europeans arrived and how it's changed since as an, as an eco-zone. And and so v- from one source and another, and be, uh, combine that with my visits here, I felt like I was on the hunt. Right. And, and when you're on the hunt, uh, in your mind, you're, you've got a project, you've got an orientation. T- it's not just random information coming in. It's you're on the hunt for something. So it's a beautiful experience. And I never, although it is research, that research sounds a little dry and library bound or mm-hmm. a little a little diffuse. And that's not really what it feels like to me at feels like uh, being obsessed. Mm-hmm. So you ha- you're a little bit of an obsessive compulsive and what you're compulsed to do or compelled to do is write this novel. And then when I finish the book, what's interesting to test, and I'm testing it out this week, the obsession's gone. It's like having an affair, the affair's over. Is New York still interesting? <laughs> and in fact, it is still interesting. I'm enjoying it. I regard Madison Square as my square. Sure. And, and, um, it's your I, building. The, yeah, the, 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 the old Met Life Tower is my building. I had dinner in it last night. That's uh, great. And it was pretty good. Did they know you were working on this book when you they were? They did. Uh, uh, well, they being their customer relations person, okay. a, a woman named Lee Upshur, who was hugely helpful, she was tickled to death that somebody was doing this. And sure. she took 
took me right to the very top, the little gold thing. You have to take a spiral staircase because there's no room for anything but the spiral That's staircase. That's why I wonder. It's a very specific detail. And I was like, yeah. they let him in. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And I spent the night there in an absurdly expensive hotel. I, I blew an entire honorarium for a speaking <laughs> gig here. <laughs> What's the name of the hotel? Do you recall? The Edition. The addition inside yeah. the tower. Yeah, yeah. Oh, I was up there. I was up there uh, for one night because it a did blow the other room. Place, right? But it. But I. Well, you know what I had to conclude. As nice as it was, is you can't possibly. It's like the the first class in an airplane. They can't possibly make it nice enough to be worth that much extra money. It's oh, just. No, it's, it's a business rip. It's, it's a, location yeah, too. But it's also a business. Uh, oh yeah. Uh, ostentatious. Oh, it's or we can blow money because we're big business. Yeah. It's it's a little stupid. I will never stay there again. But it was. <laughs> but I have been in the building. There's the Good. plug for the addition. Yeah. Um, <laughs> it's how, a great hotel, but it's too expensive. Yeah. So this is very. This is a broad book. It's a lot. Lot. How does getting ready for this or writing one of these differ from? Like, to me, like the Mars trilogy is very focused on Mars. Yeah. Right? Like, and as New York has an unbelievable amount of information about it, Mars has a relatively has a huge vast. There's a vast trove, but relatively small compared to New York City. Very much so. I would say ten books about Mars, and you know everything that humans know about Mars. Um, New York, it's more. Uh, it's not infinity because I did the Years of Rice and Salt, a book about world mm-hmm. history. That one was infinity. Mm-hmm. Um, New York is more like there's probably. Uh, a thousand good books about New York. And of course, I'm not only going to read, uh, well, 10 pretty much maxes out. And also, especially how much can you put in a novel before you've sunk it? Sure. Uh, and I, I, you can tell that I'm always testing the limits because people are always coming out of my books going, oh my God, you know, this. Right. I just had to swim, you know, pulling a tugboat behind me across the Atlantic. I never thought about that, but that's true. The Years of Rice and Salt, which is about, it's an alternative history for people who haven't read it, about um, the Black Plague is very, very fatal. Yes. Essentially, most of Europe dies in the Black Plague, and sort of what what would happen to culture if that happened, and European culture wouldn't take over, and and Middle Eastern culture would. Yeah. And that is, you're right, it's just infinite. You could have never ended writing that book. Right. Right. I I had the idea in my head for that one for maybe 10 or 20 years before I figured out how to do it, but that meant I had an entire bookshelf of potential books. Anytime I went in a used bookstore, it'd be like, oh, here's the Chinese were in East Africa in the year 1200, and you're kidding me. So I'd have to buy that book, and it went on and on and on and on and on. I remember that as sort of a real tonal shift, too. Like, it just, it it didn't read as sci-fi and maybe some of the the way that the Mars stuff did. It wasn't in the genre as much. No, uh, that one is a reincarnation novel, Mm -hmm. uh, and it's it's a strange piece of work. I can, that's, I can say that with uh, certainty. <laughs> uh, this New York novel is more normal, but it's it's sort of like Trollope. It's like one of these 19th century novels where a bunch of characters are banging around in their own plots, but they begin to make one bigger plot. So that's an interesting structure in its own uh, right and was a fun thing to follow. And that's what made it kind of a fatty, mm-hmm. is that there's eight plot lines and you would like all eight of them to be interesting in their own uh, way but also combined with each other. So eight times eight is 64. Suddenly you've got 64 possible relationships that you got to describe and it quickly got crazy. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I had to trim it on down. But Based on your research, I mean, obviously you, you dug into a lot of science here to write this book. Is there a way out? Um, yes, if I understand you, uh, the situation will never stop. 
and we have what you might call a two-century emergency. And the quicker we act now, the less desperate people are going to be a hundred years from now in coping with all this stuff. But there are technologies that you could begin to imagine carbon negative technology. So carbon positive is you're putting carbon in the atmosphere and the ocean by burning it. Carbon neutral is that uh, you end up not doing once one or the other. Calm down. Carbon <laughs> negative, you pull carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere and you use it to uh, replace cement. Uh, graphenated composites, so that this is rather cool conceptually. The same CO2 that is cooking us right now as a greenhouse gas could actually replace cement itself as it's drug out of the atmosphere. So you have less in the atmosphere and you're not making carbon dioxide by making cement, which is one of the big CO2 creating activities mm -hmm. that we do. So it's a double win. And this organization that Bill McKibben started called 350.org I love that name because it's a science fiction name. It's implying that we get back to 350 parts per million of CO2 in the atmosphere when we're already at 400. And it's not obvious how to do that yet, but it's not conceptually impossible either. Right. So, and getting back to 350 is a smart goal because if we could do it, we would substantially have our way out that you asked about. Sure. There's Most of the thinking today is... How do we slow it down? Right. Yeah. But then you could maybe stop it and reverse it. Right. And, and, but that said, there's a lot of heat already baked in to the ocean itself. So people imagine climate change is like a thermostat and you change air temperatures. <laughs> you know, you turn it on the wall, your thermostat, you turn it up, you turn it down. You think you can do the same thing with the air of the earth. And since we did cook up the air in the earth a little bit, you can imagine the opposite happening. And people tend to conceptualize it as a thermostat. But the, the heat that's in the ocean and the acidity that's in the ocean, we can't do anything about it. And uh, some of it is already baked in there. And things are warmer than we thought they were. So there are consequences for our actions. Yeah, there are always. <laughs> That's true. Yeah. And then, it, I mean, also there's, the market isn't really well incentivizing people who want to pull carbon out of the air right now, right? I mean, it doesn't, we haven't created a structure whereby businesses will get built. Like the regular incentive structures that get things done aren't aligned to us lowering the temperature. Well, it's what I would say is that the market is always wrong, and and because the market rules, it's the it's, that's one way of saying that the economic system that we're in right now rewards bad activity, mm -hmm. uh, short-term profit, but long-term damage. That really is the equivalent of a Ponzi scheme, multi-generational Ponzi scheme, and so incentivize usually means government intervention that makes people do stuff that isn't the most obvious profit. Mm -hmm. And that indeed would be the solution to our problem is to incentivize extremely actively and essentially have market interventions that the people on Wall Street just freak out at because it would be like what the Chinese do. And, sure. and the Wall Street hates China because that's state controlling the market. And the rule in uh, Wall Street is the market runs all of us, and that's the best way. So these are fundamental philosophies of how to run an economy that are in collision, and they tend to diss each other. And especially Wall Street likes to say that everybody else is stupid compared to the market, which is mindless but accurate. And well, that and just isn't They're true. rich, right? I yeah, mean, exactly. You know. <laughs> it works for them. Yeah. 
this is a gross generalization. We kind of tend to put the traffic light after the accident at the intersection. It's going to be a big accident. Yeah, I mean, agreed. I'm just yeah. thinking about well, us and how we just keep doing this. Some multi-continent pileup. No fair. Yeah. Mm. Well, we're in the midst of it. What you could say is that um, what you asked is there's a there's a question that's a, a wrong way to put it because there's no good answer. Is it too late? Is kind of a version of this question where if you answer um, no, it's not too late, then there's this tendency to think, well, good, I don't have to do anything. But if you answer, yes, it's too late, then you say, oh, good, I don't have to do anything. So the question, is it too late, doesn't have a good answer, is a question that gives you a, either answer that you give is an excuse to not do anything. Right. So you, you have to say, wait, that's not the question. The question is, how much are we going to lose? Are mm-hmm. we going to lose more or are we going to lose less? And then it's and then you talk about extinctions, because almost everything is recoverable. Uh, life being so robust, people being so resilient, uh, and you can build things. You can uh, building infrastructure or repairing infrastructure is simply work. It, it, that's what people do. So it's not so bad. But extinctions are bad. You can't sure. come back from them. Well, and accommodating a mass migration of humans is also like it's very fraught. Oh, uh, no doubt. Getting and people off the coasts. And- I calculated that a 50-foot sea level rise would be, in terms of refugees, would mm-hmm. be the equivalent of 10,000 Hurricane Katrinas. Oh, my goodness. <sighs> yeah. So you think about that. I mean, you look at where we're going now with our, our current almost non-existent refugee problem being turned into a massive political football conjoined with anti-global warming. Well, that's right. And then you, you multiply that. How many Katrinas? 10,000. All right, so 10,000 Katrinas. Terrible calculation. The the concern Mm -hmm. I have Mm -hmm. is just human beings at scale are so irrational. Well, this is testable. Um, Rebecca Solnit has a book, uh, Paradise Built in Hell, Mm -hmm. where she points out that the government built prisons before they built aid facilities after Katrina, that the first thing they did was build mobile prisons because they assumed riots were going to happen. But that the people's response was almost unfailingly to help first, and there was very little looting. And so it's it's a question how people react in crises, because there are many crises in human history. You look back and, and people responded magnificently. Right. And so sea level rise will be mostly a creeping problem. Mm-hmm. Uh, and if you get surges like the ones I described in my book, you would, 10% of the world's population lives right on coastlines. Mm-hmm. So 10% of the world's population as a refugee population, that's how I got the 10,000 Katrinas. It's stupendously bad. But um, there might be time for a lot of people to move inland or to make these New York adaptations and say, look, I'm a water rat now. I live on a houseboat. Right. Uh, so it's a, in slow motion, we don't know what humans will do. So you've written a very deep, very serious book about climate change. That's also kind of a comic novel about how people react. <laughs> yeah, yeah. At yeah, the, yeah, and it's, right. it's coming out at exactly the moment in which the entire country, or at least half the country, seems to have stuck its head in the sand like an ostrich about climate change. How uh, how are you taking that when you read the when you read the news? I'm amazed. Um, that's pretty much the best way to put it. I am amazed because you would think that people would consider the fate of their children and grandchildren and take that into account and react accordingly. But uh, people believe what they want to. You can right. tell that that's true. 
And it just means that I'm coming from a different position than they are. And as a novelist, what I try to do is understand mm-hmm. uh, what what what's the logic behind this thinking and action. And that gets interesting for plots, for stories, and for characters of different kinds in my books. Sure. But personally, I think, uh, come on, uh, don't put your head in the sand. It's a completely useless response because actually reacting and dealing is uh, interesting and it cre- it's a job creator and it's a more what you might call an adult. I mean, you guys have got young kids and young kids are often very sensible, but what you would want out of adults is to look, uh, have some foresight. Or even cynically, there's a tremendous opportunity for corruption and graft that's being untapped. Well, uh, also investment uh, yeah. of plain old market opportunities. Yeah. So, th- and synchronization, right? Like, yeah. it's there's so many. Like, if you, it's a swarm of motivations and interests. There that- is a very brilliant uh, computer scientist named Brett Victor, and one of the more recent things he did was write a very long explanation of how the technology industry can integrate and and deal with global warming, down to things like software for thermostats to turn them off and on more intelligently. Mm-hmm. And it's a beautiful and brilliant essay. And it got a lot of attention because he's pretty well known. But it should have stopped everyone in their tracks. It stopped me in my tracks. But I can't go out and manifest the work for our organization in order to do that kind of work. Well, like I, I would love to have a global warming track yeah. where we're building the apps and building the tools. But it's just not there yet. Or at yeah. least we're not connected. But that opportunity just has to exist. It's coming, but I know the coordination of effort would be cool. That's what government is intent to, was built to do. Right. And I think it will happen. Uh, I started writing about this stuff in my Washington, D.C. trilogy back uh, about 2004. The difference between 2004 and now is stupendous in terms of awareness and even action, but it has been politicized because at the turn of the century, um, climate change, global warming was a bipartisan issue where everybody agreed on it. And then unfortunately, as a kind of allergic response to Al Gore and his inconvenient truth, it began to look like, and also Democrats being sort of in favor of government and Republicans being against government, climate change insists on government involvement and government intervention in the economy. So it begins to look like uh, climate change is a Democrat, votes Democrat. And that was uh, exacerbated by Al Gore being the spokesperson of this movie. And we end up now with it being a political football when actually it's just the real future that's coming. And it's forced a lot of Republicans to say ridiculous things and behave in ridiculous ways when they didn't have to in the first place, because you can profit out of infrastructure replacement. Sure. So um, we're in a weird moment. There's no doubt about it. I mean, and I will say, I mean, this book is actually quite optimistic. Yes. The DC trilogy, and actually uh, Aurora, right before that, was not an optimistic book. Right. That was about tough times on a deep space mission. That's right. And... uh, this, I, I would say, is overall very optimistic about the human condition in all of its ridiculousness. Well, you've put your finger on it for me personally. Aurora was like a jail novel. And when I was done, I was thinking, I need some fun. My readers need some fun. Mm-hmm. So it isn't obvious that sea level rise leads to fun. But um, I wanted it. And people will want it. So 50 years after sea level rise, the young people of that time are going to be having fun. 
True. So I wanted to write about that and do a and to say to people, yeah, I've got a romantic comedy uh, about sea level rise. It sounds incoherent or even callous, but I think if you read the book, what you see is that there's reasons to construct it this way. It's against apocalyptic thinking. It's towards constructivism, and so it is an optimistic book in that sense. Mm-hmm. People will cope. That's the message. People will cope. What will that look like? It'll be kind of funny. So this has been a tremendous privilege. Thank you so much. Oh, thank you, Paul. Thank you, Rich. People should know that it is uh, New York 2140. It is from Orbit Books, and uh, it's available everywhere. Books are sold. You should read it. It's good. Thanks for having me. It's, Thanks, really, it's really been a pleasure. I appreciate it. Thank you. That was intense. Whoa. We're going to be underwater. But we'll figure it out. Well, you know, um, I'll harken back. Remember when we did the show about 101 Fifth Avenue and its history? Yes. We're just passengers, man. We're just sitting here in New York City. We're coming through. It was before us, our building was what? It was clothing makers and publishers. Socialites. Right. Before that. And now it's tech and, you know, maybe the next step will be people working on, you know, net negative carbon atmospheric extraction technology. 350. Anyway, let's get out of here. Paul, have a lovely week. Thank you. Keep your head above water. I will. Everyone who needs us, you can drop a line to hello at postlight.com. We love questions, and we like to answer them. Uh, If you want to rate us five stars on iTunes, do it. Make sure to get a nice boat because sea level is rising, and we will talk to you soon. Bye-bye. Bye.